Welcome back to Baladan. I'm Kobe Cohen. On a hot day of July 14, 2011, a small group of young Tel Avivians left their overpriced rented apartments and set their new place in tents on Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv. This act made a huge wave and pushed hundreds of thousands of citizens to become activists and join them in 10 cities across the state, demanding the government to solve the high costs of housing in Israel. The peak of the protest was on September 3rd, when the One Million March gathered hundreds of thousands of citizens to rally in the streets of Israel. I am honored to have joined by Shir Nosatsky, a social activist and founder and CEO of Have You Seen the Horizon Recently? who was one of the leaders of the largest protest ever seen in Israel, to tell us more. So Shir, welcome to Balagan. <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Tell us how it all started. Well, it actually didn't start on uh, July 14. July 14 was the day where we put uh, the first tent in Rothschild Boulevard. It's also the Bastille Day for July 14, but it was just a coincidence. It started five days earlier when we, a group of seven people, have met for the first time. It all started with a 25-year-old Daphne Leaf. Uh, she got thrown from her uh, apartment. She lived in a rented apartment in Jaffa. And she said, enough is enough. The housing prices in Israel were rising up in the last years before. And she said, that's it. Enough is enough. I'm leaving my apartment and I'm putting a tent in the middle of the most expensive boulevard in Israel in protest on the housing prices. And she reached out to a few of her Facebook friends. Facebook was something quite new in Israel back then. And she reached out and she reached out. One of the people she reached out to was my partner, my boyfriend, Regev Contest. And she didn't knew him personally. And she reached out to him. She liked what he wrote. He was writing a lot about the fact that Israel is becoming so pricey and really hard to be a young person in Israel. And coincidentally, exactly at the same week, we, that we also lived in an apartment in rent in Tel Aviv, we got a letter from our house owner saying, you need to leave the apartment in one month. And just so you understand, my boyfriend have lived in this apartment for already eight years. I lived two years with him. It completely felt like home. And we just got a letter saying, you need to leave. No real reason. He, need, he wanted to do something else with the apartment. And we didn't know what to do. We started looking at other apartments in Israel and we couldn't believe the prices was unbelievable. And people, maybe when they hear it in English, they wouldn't understand that in Tel Aviv, most of the apartments, I don't know even how to call it. In a really lousy shape. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be one way to put it. So when she reached out to us, we said, our immediate response was, yeah, obviously we're in. We had no idea that this will become something big. We thought that most chances that we will be just few people in the boulevard looking ridiculous in the summer of Israel. Think about it, the middle of July in the Israeli desert uh, called Tel Aviv. And we just, we met in our apartment. We didn't knew each other and everybody just, it felt like 
everybody had this pain that no one was talking about. And it was enthusiastic and full with spirits of change and revolution. But it's important to emphasize that when we started talking, the first group, it was only about housing prices in Tel Aviv. It was that narrow. Okay, we didn't have kind of like a revolutionary vision of Israeli politics. And we were, again, we were all in our 20s. And then we put the first tent in July 14th and it spread like wildfire. Yeah. It was unbelievable. By the way, I think the biggest catalysator for that was my boyfriend Regev at the same time. He's a documentarist and he did a movie about can you find real friends on Facebook? This is how we, he and Daphne were friends. And he was one of the first Israeli Facebook pages with 5,000 friends, which is the maximum allowed. Yes, yes. In 2011, it was very... It was a huge celebrity in uh, Facebook terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he used this uh, bank of people to spread the word. Right. And many of the people who first came said, we got it from Regev's Facebook. Most people had then 100, 200 friends. So I think in that sense, it was the first protest, Facebook protest outside of Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. And it serves for a model for protest for activism in Israel ever since. But anyway, it's, we put the first tent, it was hot, it had a humidity, but it was very exciting. And then more tents come, more tents come. And our goal was to survive the first weekend. It was Thursday and we were hoping that no one will evacuate us and that people will come and stay until Saturday evening. And then Sunday- It was like a long weekend. Yeah, in Israel, Sunday is already work day. We were said, okay, Sunday, we're all getting back to our jobs, for our lives. And it was nice. And until Saturday evening, we were already 1000 people there. In Rothschild um, Boulevard, it immediately started as a Woodstock experience. And this is something that it was a strategically decision we had. We wanted to have this message from day one saying this is a protest for the entire family. And we invited friends we had with small children and we brought uh, popsicles and guitars and it was very, very important to us that the main vibe will be not intimidating, okay? It has, you know, retrospective. It was a very strategic decision and it has its benefits and its uh, ups and downs. Ups and, downs yeah. and then Sunday morning, we all woke up and we saw, you know, this, the Rochelle Boulevard is very long and we saw there that we were already past the first block which we looked in and said, okay, something has happened. And then it started like a roller coaster. It got bigger and bigger in the sense that more and more tents come, that already 10 cities across Israel have started to rise. In its top, it was over 160 tent cities across Israel. That was thousands of people, tens of thousands, actually, when we think about it. Yeah. I remember having friends in Haifa and in Jerusalem and in the South that, you know, not only in Tel Aviv. And, and again, it's important to understand that because this podcast is in English, so to do that in the Israeli summer 
I mean, yeah. every now we are also in the summer. So every summer since then, when I'm walking in Israel, I'm saying, what we were thinking, I don't know how we survived it because it's really, when you sit in your home with air conditioner, you're still saying, oh, so hot when is and the, humid. Yes, <laughs> but when you put that glasses on it, so it's even more impressive, okay. I think, in that sense. And to show how much it's something that was burning in, literally burning in people's uh, body. So this is one thing that happened at the same time, one, we also started to getting the outside pressure. From politicians or from like policymakers, from companies, where did the pressure came from? So it came in all kinds of uh, ways, the backlash. It started very fast, I, I think from already the second week. The biggest thing was that we understood the, net, the second week that it's not a game anymore in the sense that we understood that we have responsibility here, not only to organize that and to bring people, but that we are leading a movement. You suddenly find yourselves in your 20s and the demand for, in Israel, the, in Hebrew, they ask us, I don't know if it translates well, but what do you demand? What's, what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? And the phrase of the protest was that people demand social justice. Right. What is social justice? And if I mentioned that we started around the housing prices in Tel Aviv, so very fast, they came all kinds of voices to the protest saying, well, that's a very small and privileged protest. What about- um, Kindergartens. Kindergartens. That was the models with the strollers. Yes, the yes, yes, they came. The, yes, the mothers came and, and the fathers, we and, should and say fathers, today, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. but they call, they call the, 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 the mothers, mothers the, the yeah. yeah, protest. So the parents- And then there was the cottage. Let's go the, the cottage was actually before. The cottage oh, was before. before. Yeah, it was like almost a year before the housing. But yes, but- and the food cost was part of it. And then people came and say, what about the lower... Um, the low-income society. Yes, that? yes, in, uh, in Israel. And it got bigger and bigger. What about monopolies? And it became like a very big protest about the entire mm-hmm. economical system, economical injustice. And when you put it in such a big statements and you don't come with a specific vision or theory or ideology like we did so you have like all kinds of people with all kinds of agendas coming inside sometimes even ones that contradict one another but we as the people who are leading it needed to bring the answers on what what do we want what do we ask for and in many ways we had no idea and many used this to to attack the leadership. Yeah, and I, to attack the entire protest. That it was so attempts of delegitimizing the protest and coloring it as something more political because it was, you know, eventually when you're talking about social justice, people automatically put it as a, as a left-wing issue. We shouldn't be like that because when you're talking about justice, it's for everybody. It doesn't say where your uh, political agenda is. You're talking about the Haredim as well, the ultra-Orthodox, and about the Israeli Arabs. They all had the same problems and, and shared the same distress. 
that you shared, maybe not, not as Tel Aviv uh, in comparison to Nebrak, but they also were under the burden of the economic struggle in Israel. Yes, but I think if you would talk to me in 2011, I would say yes. And now you said, I said yes, because for me, one of the conclusion of the social protest that it is very political at the end of, of the course. day. I think that this is, was one of the weaknesses because in 2011, when you would ask us, that was an answer. It's not a left or right wing protest. At the end of the day, it's important to say honestly that all of us, all of the group who led it, were leftists. Left okay, we didn't say that, but that was the truth. And obviously we didn't support Netanyahu that was the prime minister. We also had issues with the left-wing camp in Israel back then that many of its leading figures were not... Uh, uh, presenting any left-wing agenda. Any left-wing agenda, any social justice agenda, uh, the corruption was something that the right-wing hasn't invented in Israel. So yes, it's complex. But I think when you keep yourself so not political, your possibility to, to have a change is very limited, as we saw, because you don't translate the public power to political power. So it has its limitations. But um, I wanted uh, to say that we saw on one hand, the backlash was one hand, delegitimation of us as, as personals. People started looking into our past, things uh, that we did, things that we say. For example, the most extreme thing was that Daphne Leaf, who started it, when she was 18, she signed a document of uh, young people saying you shouldn't serve in yeah. the army because of the occupation. And that's something I want to say controversial in Israel, but it's not controversial. It's, 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 it's a red line. Yeah. It is yeah. a red line on one way, but beneath the surface, let's be honest, more than 50% of the people who are supposed to go to the army don't even serve. But not from ideological right. reasons. When it becomes ideological, well, it is ideological because the ultra-Orthodox don't serve from ideological yeah. perspective. <laughs> And the state of Israel don't demand the Israeli Arabs to join for an ideology. <laughs> so it's all about the ideology eventually. But, but, but some ideological but, are, are exactly. more allowed and some are less. Exactly. The ones that are spoken are the <laughs> ones that uh, people uh, despise. Yeah. So that was a very big crisis we should have dealt with. So this was on one hand. And on their hand, we got behind the scenes pressure saying, like, uh, that try to eliminate the protest in all kinds of stick and uh, carrots. You also say stick and carrots. In it, yes. right? carrots and sticks. Carrots and sticks, yes. carrots and yeah. Sticks, yeah. So we got all kinds of offers. For example, we got uh, an offer to meet Netanyahu for uh, off-the-record negotiations in Sarah the middle of the night. For the pizza, for the pizzas <laughs> at that time. But not for us, you know, she was... Uh, she didn't bring you any pizza? No, no, that was Only the wrong the protest. Yes, yes. <laughs> We had so much food, you know, because so many people wanted to take part in this protest because it wasn't political. So we got the best chefs in Israel, for example, Eyal Shani, that is very successful now in New York, that just opened kitchens, improvised kitchens in the middle of the protest, providing us food. So that wasn't our problem. 
My God, I didn't know about that. I would have come from New York to... Maria, you have food. Come on. Yeah, we know how to do protests here. Oh, my God. You know, in the middle of all of it, I said how hot it was. So we got an offer from Electra, big air conditioner company, company in Israel, offering us to put mobilized ACs <laughs> in the boulevard, saying, with the slogan saying, Electra gives you... A back wing. I don't know. It, it doesn't yeah, translate so, right. Like no, it gives yeah, you. Like, like, yeah. yeah. So the wing behind you. You, you yeah. understand the idea. Okay. So to push you forward. Yeah. Something like that. And that was a real offer. We obviously refused to it. But if we put the commercial offers aside, we got a political uh, pressure from all kinds of uh, levels. And I got to say that. It was really unbelievable that even though we were so young and so not experienced, we did not lose focus in any site in that sense. And we were not blinded by the opportunities that we got. You know, when you get offers from prime minister and, and from highest level of people in Israel and the fact that we had a very strong center saying we are not here. For that, we are here to do change. Um, this is something I think was very, very not trivial looking back. And it, it was, you know, in, in that sense, even though we were accused for that entire summer for hidden agenda, for being funded by all kinds of uh, factors, this is something that didn't... A left-wing organization. Yes, and people don't know until today, don't understand how it was all based on volunteer work. We haven't worked for months. Yeah. And it was all provided by goodwill of people and this protest in its highest peak service shows that it got 87% support in uh, Israeli population. I don't think that many Jews ever agreed on the same thing, you know? I, I definitely agree on that. <laughs> well, we're two Jews, you should disagree <laughs> on that, okay? <laughs> it got, the fact that it had such a huge support allowed us to get help and to do that. And in that sense, it was very, very pure protest. We really understood very fast that we have a role here, is that people would look on this protest years ahead and will conclude from it on activism in Israel. These people in Israel were, from the first day, they already put on us disappointments from they had from, from, past, from uh, experiments. Yeah. Oh, it's just for personal reasons. It's political. It's that, it's that. So we knew that we have to show them that this is not about that here. And in that sense, I think we kept our word. I want to ask you two, two questions. I yeah. will go question by question, but uh, it's two important um, things that I think we should uh, spend some time on. The first one, all of the protests in Israel are colored automatically because it served the, the government to show that they are against us. But technically, every protest has an agenda because you want to make a change. And the group of leadership of uh, the social protest refused to play by these terms, but eventually you wanted to make a change. So it is political per se. Don't you think that that's something that hurt the protest in the long run or in the bottom line? 
I think we were very much aware of the strategic that we have chosen for the protest, for the fact that we didn't want it to be polarized. And we knew that if we want to get the ear of big parts of the Israeli society, we should talk about it in the most non-political way. And it, it also has its logic because, again, the right wing and the left wing back then in Israel, it was already very blurred, the, the differences in the economical agenda, maybe unlike in the States. For example, when we went out to the streets, the biggest left or center left party was Kadima. It was led by Tsipi uh, Livni and back then with uh, Arik Sharon and Ehud Olmert, which was the only prime minister who sat in jail, for now, oh, no. <laughs> on, on corruption. Right. And if you would look at the economical agenda of most MKs of Kadima, which was, again, our big uh, party. Argue, by the way, that I would call it Likud Bet, but that's but, a, a different discussion. Yes, uh, but... I mean, eventually, they had a right-wing economic agenda. Yes, but since in Israeli politics, the first division was for it's 70 security. years is security, and it's on the Palestinian issue, in that sense, that was considered a center-left party yeah. of the camp. Most people who define themselves center-left have voted for this party. It was, I don't remember, 27, 29 mandates, the biggest party in Israel. And as you mentioned, they had a right-wing economical agenda. So in that sense, it wasn't a left-wing classical protest. And even if you see in the years after that, it shifted the entire political system. For example, one of the biggest parties who said, I'm here to resolve the housing crisis came from the right wing, which is, was Moshe Kahlon, who had social aspects in him. Obviously not all, but in Israel, the division between right wing and left wing is less than an economical right. issue. And in that sense, we were right to say that this is not a protest of the uh, left wing. Having said that, the fact that when we went out in the street, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was the prime minister for already two years. And since then, he was the prime minister for another 10 years. It's important to ask yourselves how come it didn't impact his career. Right. The biggest protest in the history of Israel, number wise, and even if you look long, and also to, the longest, longest, almost two months. I would of say that the last one was the longest, but I mean, in in big numbers, in case, yeah, in big yeah. numbers, that definitely was the biggest one. So the first the thing you one. should see that it influenced the person who stands in the head of the country when the protest is being held, or and the it, policies. yes, and it didn't influence neither. And in that sense, I think well, for me, when I asked myself back then. I think the protest strength was is also its weak. The fact that it was not political allowed us to be the biggest one to get such Israeli support and also to have influence on the private sectors and, and the public discourse and the public consciousness. It allowed us to have a huge impact that I think we will see for years ahead. But political-wise, it was very, very weak because it could have translated to so many ways. And I think, looking back, I think from day one, we should have said this is a political protest. We should have paid the price and we should have said Netanyahu should go home. That's 
an interesting saying. I remember that as a left winger, it, yeah. it used to really um, discourage me when, when you were, you know, not taking a stand, regardless of Netanyahu, because I, I see the policy as a policy, yeah. you know, and, you know, this fear of young people being scared of being tagged. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear it from you, you know, in the 10 years perspective. So I want to touch another point. But it's important to me to emphasize that I represent here my personal opinion. Right. And, and I can tell you that, you know, in the 10 years uh, anniversary we just had, so many of the people that was with me from the group don't feel like that. Right. And some of them actually took steps, uh, <laughs> went into the political fields and built a career, on, uh, you know, from the... And then ruined it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can say that also. <laughs> you know, <laughs> fact. <laughs> I want to I touch base about something else. Yeah. We mentioned the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, and we mentioned uh, the Israeli Arabs. And I will bring another sector to the conversation because at one point, now uh, Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Naftali Bennett, who was at that time the CEO of uh, Moetzet Yesha, it was the council of the settlers' movement came to Rothschild Boulevard and started a conversation. Those three sectors didn't really join, you know, this protest. Was there any attempt to communicate with them to expand the protest into these sectors, or it remained only in the, as we we'll call this? cities boundaries i wouldn't put all three sectors together because i think you know you gave bennett uh, as a great example i would put this uh, settlers moving apart from those two because uh, they're wealthier <laughs> that's one reason but it's important to say that most settlers who live in the settlements today are not ideological settlers they are there for economical reasons because this is the only welfare country that had left in Israel are right. behind the, the green line. And in that sense, one of the things that we resented as a social protest is the fact that what used to be the economical ideology inside of Israel has become the one outside of Israel. And the right wing in Israel promoted inside the green line a very neoliberal economical approach, but cynically use the welfare policy right. outside the green line to get people that are not right-wing ideological to get them there and to make a um, situation on ground that right. will not allow for a two-state solution, okay? So in that sense, Naftali Bennett was very, very cynical coming for, for the boulevard. And we understood that, even though we were not politically sharp or experienced, that was so obvious yes. that even we understood that. So we did not have any kind of communication or legitimation for his attempt to try to use the protest energy to promote his agenda. So I would put it all aside. We even had small crises that we had a very successful TV show in Israel that booked us for a, like a big interview on the Israeli prime time. Oh, prime time, yeah, it was Leo Schlein. Uh, oh, okay. 
פרטנר of the new minister, מרב וחיילי, and we said yes, and then we understood that it's in Ariel. which is inside the settlements, but it's inside the block. So we had like this question, do we do that or we don't do that? And we find some kind of compromise. But since we were leftists, it was an issue. Now, if I put the Arab society and the Haredic society, and I would put a third one, which is not the settler movement, but it's the very low income parts of Israel. So that's- The three, periphery. Yes, the economical periphery. Right. Because periphery was, again, 160 cities. Right. You had it even in Dimona and Dimona. Yeah. But when we looked in that sense, those three sectors had a bit different problems than we did and were very skeptical, looked very suspiciously on the protest. And I understood that we didn't look like them and we didn't come from the same background. So all those three groups. And we had attempts with all three groups to try to get them on board, understanding their part of the Israel story. But we were lacking two things. We were lacking the tools for it. Again, we were just young people with no budgets, no organizations, nothing, trying you know, to have the responsibility of main leadership campaign, which wasn't realistic. And we also didn't have the knowledge or the background on all three societies. So there were attempts. I think heroic ones, and it has some kinds of small successes that were very inspiring. For example, there was in Meron Mountain, one of the 160 tent cities were in Meron Mountain. It was tent city that was initiated by Israeli uh, Arabs, citizens of Israel, and Haredic Orthodox. Together. That's okay. That, that, that's the first time that I hear about it. It, it was a very amazing story. Again, it was in very small numbers and it didn't represent big trends, but it was things that happened that were small new successes and bridges that only something so strong as the protest could have created. And also we had density in Baka El Derbia, which is in our village and in some in Nebrake. And they were, but it was... Something very small that have started, and I can't say that it was completely inclusive for all of those societies, but I do think if you look at the trends in Israel ever since, I think it had an it impacts it has the first bridges between the societies that's amazing to hear I mean it's the first time that I heard about you know about Mount Meron and I really think that it's it's the first step yeah. Um, so I want to ask you, because you were talking about impact, and we are almost out of time, so I really want to ask you, what do you see was the impact of the social protest? I mean, in the long term, you know, when we're talking now 10 years later, Tel Aviv was just ranked as the third uh, most expensive city in the world, <laughs> after I think Hong Kong and Basel or something like that. And prices are going up in Israel. I mean, it shows everywhere. I mean, when you go to the supermarket, you can experience that. So what was the impact of the social protest? And what do you think still needs to be fixed? So successes-wise, if you look at policy, most of it was a failure. The biggest success policy-wise was a free kindergarten from age three. which I can tell you as a new mom is very, very dramatic. Yeah, it's a, 
three, four thousand shekels less per month for uh, small families for each kid. So it's dramatic, but it's for a specific sector and specific period of time. And all other attempts, most of it was a failure. Some policy against monopoly was success rules that passed. First rent control law that passed uh, that we were very much involved in, but it wasn't it was something. Passed, but now it's stuck, right? Again, uh, because it's uh... you know policy. It's 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 complex. It's bureaucracy. It's you can never look at something as complete clear success, you know. But again, all of those things at the end of the day, if you look at policy, it is not even close to match. The size of the protest and the expectations that were around it. But if you look aside policy and you look, for example, in the private sector in Israel, it was nothing less than complete revolution. The Israeli of 2011 was a triumph for tycoons and billionaire. It's not just for billionaire, but it's for billionaires approach. celebration of um, very much American uh, wise yeah. and in that sense it, Israel has shifted completely all the biggest tycoons in Israel people who created their money with the, their billions of, of shekels and dollars from using uh, all kinds of technical policy things and on the back of the public and the public uh, uh, pensions and Yes, uh, yes. So getting haircuts on the public's uh, pensions and uh, getting uh, the dividends from uh, paid companies. So all of the most wealthy layer in Israel did most of it did that money in that sense. You know, we talk about a startup nation. Yeah. The biggest money was not in startups, not At in innovation. Time, so. Yes, was on economical manipulations on the back of the public. That is gone. All the biggest one, Dunkner and Fishman and all of those people are Shuva was still playing in this uh... But you know, even look, Chuva was the hero in 2011 oh, because and he was a self-made man and uh, that was the narrative as a, as a contractor and uh, And now most of the public looks at him as a crook. Yeah. Uh, my dad lives actually door to door to Chuva and is not a welcome person in his society. And this is also something meaningful. And so in that sense, the, the public discourse has completely changed, but also the, it influenced the private sector. And I can tell you from friends of mine who worked in publishing, in the banking system, in uh, food uh, companies, they say that even 10 years after it, you see the protest inside the smallest rooms when decisions need to be made, thinking, wait, How will it publicly seen? And this is something that wasn't in the past. So it influenced the prices, it influenced the business choices and the discourse, and also the entire public narrative. What is a success? What is a legitimized behavior? And I think in that it's very, very meaningful. If you put policy for a minute aside, if you put how much I need to pay every month for my part, which is not easy to put aside, but if I do, if I put it aside, It was revolutionary, and I think we'll see the impact of it for many years ahead. The limitation it had on policies were A, because we were not political enough, B, 
the fact that in Israel, no matter how much the economical issue is important to people, it's not why they vote at the end of the day. And if we will not deal with the pink elephant in the room, or you should call it the (laughs) red-green elephant, the Palestinian elephant, so you will not be able to give an holistic change because at the end of the day, you can do whatever you want, but Netanyahu will say, Iran, Palestinians. And it's not yeah. just him, to be honest. I mean, most politicians will find something to scare the public with. He was just mastering it. Yeah. But you always have, I mean, that's one of the biggest, I would say, challenges of the state of Israel to start looking, I would say, in a, in a matter of scarcity around the Palestinian issue and start looking at other aspects that have more influence on their day-to-day life, which is what you try to emphasize in the social protest. You know that one of the most incredible things that happened, that the protests, I said that we had more than 160 tents inside right. of Israel, but we also had 10 cities outside of the Green Line. Okay. Not in Jewish settlements, there was actually in Palestinian, Palestinian cities. cities. No there way. was, yes, there was <laughs> the one I, I remember, I don't remember which, maybe, I'm not sure, maybe Ramallah, I'm not sure where, but it, it was like some kind of a taxi driver's protest. Weird things happened in the summer of 2011. It was very hopeful. Interesting summer and hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Chir, I really want to thank you for uh, shedding light on what happened back then in 2011. We will definitely um, speak again on that term and on other issues as well. So I really want to thank you for joining us today and enlightening us. Thank you for inviting me. And I want to thank uh, my audience again for uh, being a part of Balagan. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day. Oh,